Hello and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I am your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today, I'll be discussing sci-fi and fantasy bookselling with Chris Sago. Chris is a writer and editor who lives in Toronto, Canada, and for 18 years, she was the manager of Back of Phoenix, the oldest extant sci-fi and fantasy bookstore in North America. And here we are with Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi there. How's it going? Not too bad. Thanks for coming by. Um, so I'd like to actually start by asking you uh, a kind of a personal question. Um, would you mind telling us about the first time that you remember reading speculative fiction? You know, what might you remember about that book, if anything? And, and how did you get it? You know, bookstore, library, uncle, something like that? Uh, Narnia. I had read the whole series several times before... My grade four teacher read it to us when, you know, when you used to go and sit on the carpet and your teacher would read to us. She read us The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and how did you generally get a hold of your books? Was it... Uh... Uh, local library. Okay. I lived cl- very close to, there was a small local branch library right next to my school, and I lived a block away from both. In fact, that was where I got my first job when I was 14. It's funny, when I go back and look now, books have been part of my employment right from the beginning. I worked at a book stand. It was owned and operated by Hallmark Cards, but when I was in high school, it paid more. It was closer to, you know, it was closer to my school. Uh, but what they sold at this stand was books. I was going to ask you what made you want to go into book selling and working with Back of Phoenix in particular, but it sounds like we're already getting in there. Please continue. I worked for Chapters for a couple of years and was to my very good fortune, scouted by John Rose, the former mm-hmm. owner of Beckett. Um, so I'm curious how much you learned about the history of the store while you were there. Uh, we, we know that it opened uh, in 72, and it was one of the first bookstores to specialize in speculative fiction. Yeah. Um, how did it get started, and what was its mission? Um, now, that was that was very pre-me, and I know mm. the three of the three people who started it, Charlie McKee is the only one I've really met, okay. um, and sometimes see him on Facebook. Mm. And they really wanted to bring this, at the time, burgeoning field of ideas to the populace. And yes, uh, they started it, uh, the the word baka itself is not Japanese. That only has one K when you translate it. It's from Dune. It's from Fremen mythology in Dune, and it means the weeper who mourns for all mankind. When Ben came in, when Ben Fryman came in in 2003, they added the phoenix to suggest the Rebirth, reborn, but also continuation. And they didn't want to change the name um, because the reason you buy a store like Baca is for its history mm-hmm. uh, and its institutional memory. Well, I mean, I know Baca Phoenix has had a, a strong relationship with the collection that continues to this day. Uh, do you know how that came about? Because, like, a for profit bookseller and a public lending library, you know, they might at first seem like an odd combo, but maybe you could elaborate on why it is. Most independent booksellers do not see libraries as competition, mm-hmm. they are colleagues. We are, we coexist. Uh, Libraries send people to us. We send people to libraries. Uh, Both of us value one another for the things that we author. The reason the Merrill and Baca work so well together, I think, is the community, is that they are community. They are not just colleagues. Mm -hmm. They are part of the same wider community, which is the SF community. And I, not just the fan community, also the reading community, also the um, academic community. And the writers, of course. And the writing community. Um, back when both of these things started, it would have had to be both a physical, mental 
intellectual community because mm-hmm. there wasn't an online community. It just, there wasn't. And yeah, everybody was here. Yeah. You know, Judith was here. Mm-hmm. Backer was here. Many writers were here and many more came. And it just grew. I'm curious what you could maybe tell our listeners about how, uh, prior to the opening of the store, um, uh, given that it was one of the earliest specialty stores, how did consumers access their SF fantasy and horror, like magazines, oh, mail order? It would have been, well, magazines, um, mail order. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, when you think about uh, science fiction in North America, this is where things like Valentine came in, right? Mm-hmm. Where they looked over and said, Across the ocean, because we've been there, they're selling lots of something like Lord of the Rings. I'm going to bring those books back here and print them in cheap paperback editions, make them available. Right, um, and, and would, um, would say around the time of Back of Phoenix's opening be when, uh, well, I guess it would be before mainstream bookstores embraced the genre. Do you know roughly when like, oh, it became I, less of a thing that shoved in one corner? Oh, you know, I'm not really sure. Again, and partly because my memory is colored because of my first job in a library, even though we were a tiny library, we had the section. But even a few years later, working at a book stand, the genre was, was already separated out. So, I mean, do you feel maybe it wasn't quite such a, um, a niche then? I, I often think about authors like, say, Kurt Vonnegut was always, it seemed in interviews, very frustrated mm-hmm. that some of his works were classified as science fiction as if they were, you know, made, belittled and shoved in a corner kind yes. of thing instead of the mainstream stuff. I can, I can certainly see that. And from a sales point of view for an author, um, it matters a lot uh, because of the square footage allotted to books in stores. Right. Um, and then it does sometimes seem to be um, like a hierarchical thing. I remember when I saw uh, the finale of um, Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy mm-hmm. uh, in the chapters, mm-hmm. and it was not in the sci-fi section. Oh, yes. It was, I mean, maybe there were one or two copies, but, you know, the, the big display was there by the front door. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and I remember there were some interviews where it seemed she wasn't keen to describe it as such, despite the fact that it had genetic engineering and all yes. kinds of other you know, well, big sci-fi it, tropes. It, it, man, Peggy gets a lot of for that, where where someone took out of context something that she said in an interview mm-hmm. and took it to mean that Margaret Atwood looks down on science fiction. She does not. She herself was a huge reader. She was a guest at um, a science fiction kind of colloquium a number of years ago, and she was the guest speaker. She was hilarious. She brought along a story that she had written when she was nine, and it was set on Venus, <laughs> right? It's like she was writing science fiction from the get-go. And at the end of it, there was a little postscript that said, P.S., I made all of this up because you can't breathe on... You know, on like, Venus, yeah. it was hilarious. <laughs> but she was writing it from the beginning, so she does not have that. What she, I think she was feeling was, as a writer, she didn't want to be pigeonholed into, if you are a science fiction writer, you write books about spaceships and ray guns. Now, that is not what science fiction is, Mm -hmm. right? That is not what science fiction does. But in some perceptions, mostly Mm marketing-driven, that's what it is. And that can be very hard for an author if you get pigeonholed into that. Along with specialized bookstores, by the early 70s, we see, you know, more and more publishing houses uh, embracing the genre. I'm, I'm curious if you could speak to maybe what prompted that and, like, what publishers took the early lead in promoting speculative fiction. In fact, some of the big publishers took the lead there. I mean, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with the kind of straight-up appropriation of Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. But that created a whole market. Yeah, and I, mean, I, think, I think that's what imprints have attempted to do all the way along, is 
are started to match a trend or a hint of a trend or a, a particular like, and they stay and they, they live if they match it properly and create their own audience. Yeah, absolutely. And from what I understand, um, you know, Lord of the Rings coming in and creating the explosion that it did inspired lots of uh, newer, you know, people to come along and mm-hmm. go, oh, we should revive things, whether, you know, or, or do new things. Uh, you know, the revival I always think of is um, Sprague into Camp mm-hmm. with Ace, uh, providing what I think was a second revival of yes. Conan, well, and then, which was contentious for its own reasons. But, yes, uh, yeah. and there are people who are much better historians mm-hmm. of speculative fiction than I, who, who can give you timelines uh, in terms of the Golden Age, the Silver Age, etc., whatever they call them. Because again, you, you can you can go back a lot further to the to the the pulps of the twenties, to the radio serials, to all of that stuff. I mean, frankly, if you think about it, Midsummer Night's Dream is speculative. Yep. Right? Like like <laughs> it's it's been a part it it is, you know, uh, speculation is the foundational rebar of modern English narrative. Let's turn back to sort of more modern uh, stuff to do with publishing uh, and this explosion that you described, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, uh, Harry Potter or just in general. I mean, it's not a secret that mm-hmm. genre has been flourishing. Would you say, you know, are we need, in, more in need of curators now than ever to navigate the sheer amount of content? You know, is this where, say, back at Phoenix librarians can help customers? Or can we just trust the algorithms? They can just tell us no, what to read now. No. Uh, okay, now, again, I know I'm coming from a bias when I say that. Uh, but an algorithm will only tell you what other people bought. Mm-hmm. It won't tell you why. We, get, we can get more detail because you're actually talking to a person. So we can become fairly good at deciding what it is that you like and what it is that you don't. So, okay, so you, you were sort of getting into it there. Uh, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind expanding, like, on how do you sell, you know, SF fantasy and horror successfully? And, like, how do you bring in people, the few who remain, it sounds like, who may not have experience with the genre? How might you cross that divide and they say to that literary-only person, you know? Well, I noticed one thing. Um, to take one step back, in North America, women buy 80% of the books right? Because women do most of the shopping. Uh Women buy books for themselves, they buy books for their kids, their friends, their partners. The only section in which this was not true was the science fiction section, in which men bought 8% of the books. I have watched that ratio shift. So now I would say our customer base is, it's not going to be 80-20 women, uh, but it is possibly 55-45 women. And that is the mainstreaming of speculation. I'm curious how your relationship was with publishers uh, when it came to this uh, side of things. Uh, and then how did, you, how did you decide what to order outside of the, the obvious, you know, let's get yes. some more Harry Potter in. Yes, uh, yeah. For 18 years, I would sit down with the publisher's reps anywhere from six to three months ahead, and we would go through all of their catalogs. There are entire imprints devoted to science fiction and fantasy. Simon & Schuster, for instance, distributes Bain in Canada. Bain is a military, mostly military science fiction, not entirely. Um, Penguin has several lines that are strictly rock, ace, daw. These are all, so I know I'm going to be taking pretty much every one of those. So we will flip through them and I will just give you numbers. But then we would also go through other catalogs because, you know, once a year, uh, science fiction would come out from the Norton catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, once a year, or you know, three or four times a year, these people over at Morrow, they have that's Harper Collins. They would Morrow has um, 
there's the Harper Voyager list, which is strictly speculative. Are there any particular imprints that you feel are doing the best job in giving expression to emerging new voices, um, to, to making marginalized groups uh, stories there, less There marginalized? are a number of, of imprints, um, but they could kind of smaller things. Um, Augur, uh, mm. Apex, Anathema Magazine, um, these are online things. But also, I would say, as a whole, some of this is coming from the YA genre. R YA is technically an age distinction, but it is actually in an, a genre in and of itself now, and I think that's where a lot of this push is coming from. Um, and, and so, to, to flip it for a sec, how do you feel about um, you know the classics, you know, quote unquote, capital C classics? Like, do they, you know, sort of still hold up in terms of selling? Are people still looking for Starship Troopers, you know, or anyone, or, or you know, the classic Asimovs? Or is it time to maybe you know, they're canon, there's something to study, but maybe we need to move on? Oh, I, I, well, both. Again, this is not a line that has to be defended. Mm. If you love the classics, you, you are absolutely allowed to. I feel um, that some of the shift, again, has been in storytelling quality, not quality of idea. Um, I myself am not a huge fan of Asimov's, like the ideas. Writing doesn't exactly sing. Um, there are writers today who are wonderful big idea storytellers, whose writing is also just marvelous. Uh, Robert Charles Wilson would be one, mm -hmm. uh, in which he's capable of, of taking a really big idea, but also putting in the, the, the language. But again, if what you like is the idea and you want to see it rigorously explored and the language doesn't matter to you, that is a perfectly acceptable way to want to read. You are not required to defend it. Um, and, and the classics are still, uh, classics. Let's, we're putting air quotes around classics. Yeah, the, the, the capital um, C classics, yes. the traditional sort of you know, that we think, canon, um, yeah. foundation, mm. we still sell it regularly. Um, I think we, it's being adapted for TV right now. Yes. So. We still sell a lot of Dune. Actually, I have to say just before I left, it was, Dune was reissued. Fabulous new cover. And suddenly... We have always sold it mm -hmm. regularly. I mean, you know, we're back, uh, Phoenix. <laughs> it's, it's something we feel yeah. the need to have. But suddenly we were selling it fast. And that was entirely a market. People would come in and say, like, man, that looks great. I've always meant to read that. I love this a cover. I'm going to pick it up. And we didn't do anything. The, all the publisher, the text wasn't changed. Nothing has changed except the cover presentation. Okay, so uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I was thinking maybe we could tie it off um, by having you sort of make any recommendations of either exciting trends uh, to check out uh, or, or just authors, which, of course, I'm sure there's too many names, but, <laughs> but whatever, whatever pops into your head first is, is the right answer. You know? Oh, no, don't, no. Don't, don't worry no, about it. No, don't make you, me do that be because then if I forget <laughs> someone, I'm going to feel guilty and they might feel I bad. Absol consider me terrible. a priest. I absolve you of the guilt. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, uh, yeah. There are so many. There, there are so many. And but you see, I have the automatic bookseller hesitation, which comes with, I can tell you what I have loved, but I need to know what you like, and then I can tell you what you're gonna love. Um, well, we are partly here to get to know you. So, what do you love? I like a lot of young adult fiction. I, well, I like a lot of adult fiction. One of the big, big things I'm looking forward to is Catherine Addison. Uh, who wrote Goblin Emperor, which I adored. I found out just recently her new title has been listed, mm -hmm. and I can't wait for that.
you know what, I'm going to be a jerk and change my mind. I'm very intrigued by your, your powers. Uh, so, okay, um, I could say a lot about my love of genre, I'll keep it short. My, I'm a lifelong William Gibson fan. I've read every book, read a, as many interviews and a short stories, everything I can of him. So he's kind of the long, the big love. And then my sort of, you know, the new hotness in my reading for me the last year has been reading as much as I can from the appendix and list, Gary Gygax's list of inspirations for his creation of D&D, which has largely sent me into things like those Dragon to Camp Conans I mentioned, mm -hmm. things with names like Thongor the Barbarian, uh, which I say with no shame, uh, low art, high ideas, <laughs> lots of really wacky stuff. Uh, so yeah, pulpy, pulpy 70s fantasy, uh, you know, Elric, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my profile in short. Hit me. What should okay. I be reading now? Okay. Well, I'm going to hit you with the bookseller question, which is, give me a third point in that triangle. It doesn't have to be a book, something that you've loved. Um, oh, no, I'll keep, I can keep it okay. the books. Keep uh, the books. I, I recently, for the third time at least, rediscovered my love of Zadie Smith, which is not genre. Mm. No? Okay. Uh, but again, now that's, that's getting us back into the style. So mm. just from this, what I'm, I'm getting a couple of things. With the Gibson, what you like is the crunchy hard ideas, also the personal journey. I love his description. I reread the hotel description in the first chapter of Zero History every once in a while just for pleasure. Mm -hmm. uh, with the, the Conan <laughs> that you were talking <laughs> about, the, the wacky Conan, the 70s pulse. Larger than life adventures. A little bit of the wackiness, uh, the heroic model. Zadie Smith, this is also this is going to be about uh, thoughtfulness and language. All right, so I'm going to suggest some names. You may have read them. What we would do in the store is we would. This is how we would do it. We pull a bunch of books and talk to you about them. Um, for that wackiness, um, Edgar Castillo, I believe his name is, has had a couple of books. Uh, meddling kids and this body ain't big enough for the two of us fabulous weird a little darker funny sometimes very funny uh, and one of the things that I love that I have seen a trend aside that I have seen in recent years is the ability of people to be funny even under difficult circumstances the book is not a comedy it's not a farce but sometimes people are funny for another reason for this larger-than-life adventure with some of the funny, with some of the wacky, but also some of the pensiveness, Scott Lynch, hmm. Lies of Lapamora. It's both teamwork and heroic model, but, um, and, and tipping these things on their heads. Uh, for the language and the wacky, I would recommend Francis Harding to you, um, probably starting with Fly by Night, uh, which begins with a girl who burns down a barn, steals a goose, and leaves town. <laughs> Um, and <laughs> ends, really want to know about exactly that ends up traveling with a con man, and because the two of them can read in a city state where literacy is illegal, they accidentally end up at the epicenter of a revolution. Um, that said, the book is actually about, and this is one of the things Francis Harding is so great at, at the cultural underpinnings of your society. Uh, one of the things she's amazing at is how your your culture. Your cultural mythology can both lift you up and hold you down. Um, those would be suggestions. Also, uh, other things I would suggest just from this, Lois McMatter-Bujold, her uh, Verkosikin books, have a little bit of that zaniness, have a little bit of the warrior hero, have a little more of the science fiction. Um, Derek Kunskin, um, quantum magician, I believe is the first. He's just come out with a second one, Magicians. I was just at the book launch. 
the title has escaped me. Interesting, uh, fast-paced, a lot of not quite singularity, but a lot of uh, Gibson-esque kind of connections. Anyway, those would be my suggestions. Check them out. Sounds great. Thank you so much. All right, this has been a, a wealth of wonderful information. Thank this you been for a lot of fun. your time. Thank All you. Right. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.